Well, now that we've overcome that and I have managed to get situated on the stool, it is a great <laughs> honor and privilege to be up here with Vaughn. Uh, as many of you know, I have uh, had the privilege of going to Oxford a number of times, and I had become aware of Vaughn and the ministry that he had at St. Abbs. And the first time we actually met in person was around eight years ago when I was leading a study tour with some students doing a Lewis pilgrimage in Oxford, and we had all decided that we were going to go to St. Abbs on Sunday morning. And we didn't really know what to expect. And we walked into St. Abbs, which is an ancient church right in the heart of Oxford, very near Christchurch College. And we walked in and we were absolutely stunned because there were literally hundreds and hundreds of Oxford students who were there in church. And that was glorious. Uh, perhaps even more glorious, we were so warmly welcomed by several parishioners who took us to great seats in a crowded place. And then the minister, Vaughn, who had been up in the front of the church, came down and introduced himself to us and welcomed us personally. So uh, it was a great uh, beginning of uh, a friendship, and it has been a great blessing to have Vaughn here. And one of the things that Jeff mentioned, <laughs> in the heart of Oxford, and one of the interesting things about that is that if you are a Lewis fan and you've read a book that's called A Severe Mercy, uh, that is a marvelous book that I would commend to you, uh, it recounts the conversion of some Americans through their time in Oxford and their relationship not only with C.S. Lewis, but their relationship with St. Ebb's Church. Some of you may have more recently heard of the book Surprised by Oxford and the movie uh, about that, and St. Ebb's and uh, Vaughn actually is mentioned in that book. So uh, it is a great privilege to have uh, you here with us. And since the teaser in the announcements was, who was St. Ebb? Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the history of St. Ebb's, who St. Ebb was, and who St. Abbs is today. Well, first St. Abbs, she was a uh, Northumbrian princess. So we're talking before England was one nation, you've got a variety of different kingdoms. And in the northeast of England was Northumbria, and Ebba was a princess of Northumbria in the early seventh century. And uh, the Venerable Bede, who wrote uh, a history of the English church and people, uh, speaks of her conversion, and she then became a nun. She set up a religious house. But quite why she's, she was venerated so far away, because Oxford's in the south of England. But the best guess is that in the year 627, when the king of Wessex, which is the, uh, the kingdom down in the south, was converted and was baptised in the River Thames, very likely royal Christians would have come from around the other kingdoms, and St. Ebba very likely came. So as far as we know, there's been a church on the very site of St. Ebbs, um, where we are today, since the late 7th century. So I was not long ago in Houston, and I was speaking to church planters, and I said, well, it's wonderful, I, I believe in church planting, and in fact, I, I, I myself work for a church plant, uh, we were planted over 1,300 years ago. <laughs> um, St. Ebbs today, um, different building obviously from the 7th century, but there's been a continuing pre presence of worshipping community down the years. 
it, it's in the, historically, the slum area of the city. It's right on the edge of the city wall. So you've got the university. There's no campus in Oxford University. You've got to, bits of it all over the, the city centre. So it surrounds us. And so on one side, there's the university. On the other side, it's a traditionally poor uh, community and which both that local community and the university and those who, who come in from around the city to, um, to our services. We've also planted uh, into uh, other communities as well. Well, I will highly commend, if you ever find yourself in Oxford, to go and visit. It is a wonderful place. One of the things that I would love to hear you talk a little bit about is the changes that you have seen uh, in the university population and the attitude and needs of students uh, over your time of ministry there, right in the heart of this university. I got ordained in, in 1991, and uh, at that point, probably, there, there was still quite a number of Christianized students. So they, they would have had a vaguely Christian upbringing, um, probably not with great faith in, in the home, but maybe occasional church going and aware of um, a, a, a Christian worldview in the background. Mm -hmm. So uh, we would find at the beginning of the university term, there'd be lots of them who would come who uh, probably believed in God, believed that he, he created the world, believed that Jesus had something to do with him, but didn't really understand the gospel, but had been pre-evangelized by some kind of Christian uh, worldview. So quite quickly, uh, we'd always expect people converted on that first Sunday. We'd preach evangelistically the first Sunday of university term, and uh, people would be converted, and it would happen quite quickly um, because there was such a big fringe. Now that fringe has virtually disappeared. So over 30 years on, the, the younger generation basically are disconnected from church unless they are, their parents are deeply committed believers, in which case they're, they're, they're very much in church week by week by week, and we've, we see quite a number of them who come. But the, the fringe don't come because they don't exist really. And so it's much harder. And rather than just wait for people to come to us, we need to think more imaginatively about how we can go to them and engage with them. So rather than wait to see who comes and evangelize them, we're trying to do things. So we have discussion groups. Um, I know you have theology on tap. Um, we, we have discussion groups in Starbucks or those, those kind of contexts. Interestingly, the people who often come are international students. And, and the, the other big change that's happened in Oxford is that um, the university has discovered that the way to get money is to have students from overseas because they can charge them more. And uh, so where, whereas it was um, a largely undergrad university with a few graduate students, it's now about half and half graduate students. The graduate students might do a year, some of them do three or four. And about 60% of the graduate students come from overseas which is a huge opportunity for us, that the world is coming to Oxford. And interestingly, a, a number of them would just turn up. Uh, we've seen many mainland Chinese converted, for instance, um, because they're just intrigued. So great opportunities there. Yes. Well, one of the things that is always remarkable every time we have worshipped at St. Abbs is to see the number of people who have come out of St. Abbs and are now engaged in full-time Christian ministry uh, in other parts of the world. And I would love for you to share a story or two maybe about Edward or about uh, 
someone else <coughs> like that who came into the church and then the Lord used in a remarkable way. I will, but I'm going to need someone to get me a cup of uh, water because I'm about to cough. I've got something in my throat. <laughs> I, I've finished that already, thank you. Um, I'll keep going, I think I'll manage. Um, well, it's one of our longings because people are with us for a short time and that could get exhausting, uh, but we see it as a great opportunity. And what we're longing is, is to um, evangelise, disciple and send. And um, if the gospel gets under people's skin, thank you, Bill, very much. That'll save me. Brilliant. Um, <clears throat> so our, our longing is that at the end, people are thinking, I, I'm here to serve Jesus. I'll go anywhere to serve Jesus. And of course, then the Lord scatters them because uh, no one, uh, Oxford's a residential university, so it, it's not for locals, and you have to come and stay in university accommodation. And so then they'd all leave, and they're scattered. So we want them to leave with the gospel. Um, and uh, men, dear friend of mine, Grew up in uh, Kokomo, uh, Indiana. Uh, Indiana? Kokomo. That's in Leicestershire, right? Um, it's not, yes, it's, it's the other one. Um, and uh, for, with a French mother, American dad, um, started at Williams College, came and did a year abroad in Oxford, and his faith grew, and uh, he wanted to keep learning the, about the faith, so determined to come back. He did graduate studies in theology, joined us in, as an intern. And he's thinking, what can I do with my life? So the question we want them to ask is, what is it that I can do as the person I am with the gifts that I've got that can most bring glory to God? It's not a bad question for us all to ask. And he thought, hang on, I could go back to America, but I, my mum's French and I'm fluent in French. And uh, the gospel need in France is, is much greater than in America. So he determined to, to go to France and uh, he was a church planter in France, and I encouraged him to pray that others would join him. And so there's another close friend from Oxford who was, studied French, fluent in French, and so they went together with their, their wives and then others as well. So uh, an amazing church planting ministry. And very tragically, Edward uh, died in a climbing accident just two years ago. He was in the Alps with his family and uh, tragic. Um, his wife, English, determined to stay, and the four kids still there all beautifully. The oldest son is coming to study in Oxford for a, for a year starting now, actually, for well, six months. Uh, but they set up a fund in um, Edward's name, and, and that is now um, paying for interns, French interns around France, because they're trying to pray that God would raise up French workers. So that's a beautiful story. I mean, another story, Roseanne Jones... Um, came to study in Oxford, was converted through St. Ebbs, and she was studying Japanese. She just loved the, the culture. And uh, soon after being converted, she went to Japan for a year because if you're studying languages, you go abroad for a year. So she went and uh, she found she loved Japan and she had an amazing ability, she, so she spoke the language. And again, she's thinking, what can I do? It's the person I am with the gifts that I've got that can most bring glory to God. And she thought, well, I could live here. So she determined to, to be a missionary in, in Japan, and as, as you know, a very financially wealthy country, but spiritually very poor. Amazing things happening around Asia, but Japan has been very resistant to the gospel for, for well, big questions of why that might be. Um, in 1995, I happened to be in Singapore as she was training with her last stage of her missionary training 
the mission agency training in Singapore, and she was about to go. And as she said goodbye, I was going on the bus to the airport, she said, you'll come and visit, won't you? And I said, well, I hope to, but I can't promise to come soon or often. But if you want people from St. Ebbs to visit you, pray that the Lord would raise up others to come and join you. And she said, I'll do that. And she did pray. Um, the next term, I was speaking at an evangelistic gathering of students, and a girl was converted. And um, when I got to meet her, she told me she was studying Japanese. And I thought, I wonder what's happening here. <laughs> and uh, wonderfully, in the province of God, um, she and her husband, who was another student at Oxford, um, a bit before her, they never met, but I remember her husband well, but they met later, and they went to serve the Lord Jesus in Japan. Uh, then there was another student. Um, shall I keep going? I could yeah. go on forever. Yeah. Um, I'll if, stop you if, 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 if you want. Too much. If you want a question, just ask. But, um, but these are great stories. This man um, had the world at his feet, brilliantly intelligent, um, played f soccer for the university, um, living the high life, um, and he'd just been in a black tuxedo party, uh, lying in his bed. And most people think, this is life. But he thought, there must be more than this. And his mother was a Christian and had sent him off to university with, with a Bible. So he read the Bible and he thought, I've got to go to church. Came to St. He was converted. And then he went on a mission trip to Japan because we sent people to go to Razan. And he thought, I could come here. So he married another of our interns and they're still in Tokyo. And then... Um, in his college, he started evangelizing, and one of the young men, he led to Christ, and then another girl came to Christ. Well, that, they'd been in Japan. So I went, uh, there's a beautiful picture, photograph, that uh, means the world to me, of me with them all. And there were about 15 um, who were serving the Lord in Japan. So that's what we long for. <laughs> Praise God. Yes, indeed. And one of the other things that has been remarkable in our is the just incredible hospitality and friendliness of the congregation. I'll never forget one time when Jane and I were there, um, I guess two years ago, and we were walking in and there was an older lady and she just made a beeline for us. This huge smile, we're so glad you're here, and uh, <laughs> took us to a seat and started asking us all these questions and going on and on about how excited she was to be at St. Ebbs and how excited she was about what the Holy Spirit was doing there and how excited she was that we were there. And only at the end did I find out that she was Susie Fletcher, whose her late husband had been the rector of St. Ebbs, who probably hired you. We worked together for seven years and then yes. I, I replaced him, yeah. So to what do you attribute, I mean, it's really, it's quite strikingly warm and friendly, and I don't think that's probably by accident. Well, it, it is the gospel, surely. And I have to say, it's been my experience here too. Um, amazing warmth. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, went to uh, New York City and um, just around the time of the war, and was questioned whether he was going to go back. But it, uh, he went to an African-American church, um, but uh, before he went, and that, that had a huge impact, but um, he wrote in his diary something like this, uh, I'm, I'm going, it's Sunday tomorrow, I'll be going to church, 
I wonder if I'll hear the gospel preached. Mm. Only the gospel brings community. And uh, he recognized that. So if, we, if we're under the, one of the talks we heard yesterday was on gospel hospitality. And of course, God is a welcoming God who welcomes everyone. And he's not just looking for people like him because there are none. Uh, he, he welcomes everyone. And once that gospel of grace gets into your heart, you'll do the same. Well, it has clearly gotten into people's hearts, which is a great blessing in so many ways. I would love to, without giving away uh, what you're about to preach on, one of the things that you did touch on in your sermon was the idea of perseverance. And there's that wonderful book by Eugene Peterson, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it's very interesting to me that you have been in your current role for a while, since apparently you were about five years old. And uh, over that period of time, ministry is full of joy, but it's also full of challenge and attack and difficulties and sometimes even dark nights of the soul. And I would love to hear a little bit about how you have maintained and strengthened and allowed the Holy Spirit to continue to work through you over a long period of time? What are the disciplines, what are the other aspects of your life that uh, cause that to be the case? Well, you say, what have I done to allow the Holy Spirit to work through me? I mean, so often he, he does it in spite of me um, by his amazing grace. And yes, there have been good times, there have been hard times. And that, of course, is the Christian life. But it's certainly the life of ministry. And I, I think I might have quoted to you one of the... Um, the hymns that John Newton and William Cooper wrote together, it's called On Ministry. What contradictions meet in ministers' employ? It is a bitter, sweet, a sorrow full of joy. And uh, that's the Christian life, isn't it? And um, I, I, I couldn't do it without God's people. So you talk about the Christian community. And I arrived at St. Ebbs as, as a student training for ministry, so I arrived at 24, and there are still some of those folk who, you know, they've known me man and boy. And, and that's great, because I'm, I'm not just ministering to the people, they're ministering to me. And I'm, I'm sure the clergy here would say, you ministered to them, it's not one way. And um, sometimes I've carried them, at other times they've carried me, more than they realize, I think. I mean, there have been a number who have, many have prayed for me every day. And the people, I was asked to, to do a, an interview only the last couple of weeks, and I was asked to mention someone who's influenced me most. And I think they were expecting a fellow minister. But I immediately thought of the, the older saints who used to pray every Friday night. They prayed. And um, I know that, uh, sadly, almost all of those are now with the Lord. But they, they, they prayed for me every day, some of those older saints. And I think they, they thought that they had little to offer. In fact, one of them, a lovely lady called Daphne, who, had, who struggled massively with depression, I remember her saying to me once at the door, I'm useless, I'm good for nobody. And um, I was able to say with deep conviction, Daphne, you, you mean the world to us and we couldn't be doing what we do without you. And she prayed for me every day. Um, she suffered a lot, 
but she and her sister began every day with morning prayer at home, both um, single, and they'd sing a hymn. Mm. And so when every now and then we'd go away for a church weekend, um, she thought it was appropriate to keep the practice going, so she would sing a hymn down the corridor. Now, it has to be said, she didn't have a very beautiful voice. <laughs> um, and, and yet, nonetheless, um, I, I've, I really, my, I've really heard a more beautiful sound. Yeah, I, I miss her still. So, you know, they've kept me going. Mm. And there are some others that, 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 who are younger who, who do it. And it may be some here who you think, you know, I offer very little. Um, all I can do is pray. All you can do? <laughs> and so, I, you know, many of them have prayed and I haven't even known they've done it. And the Lord has used their prayers to keep me going. It's a beautiful thing. Mm. One of the stories that you were telling me yesterday was... Uh, a little bit about arriving at Winchester College as a wide-eyed 13-year-old uh, with all of your world and all of your future before you and wondering what would happen with your life and then over the course of the years how you discerned a call to ministry. Could you share some of that with us? Yeah, well, between that moment and discerning a call to ministry was my conversion. Um, I, w I was at a boarding school with a traditional chapel um, I went morning and evening. I went to boarding school at eight. So I worked out that I'd been to church or chapel two and a half thousand times. <laughs> um, before I came to, 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 to know Jesus, which was just before my 18th birthday. That's a lot of religion packed in. So um, I was like one of those that I described in the early 90s who'd been kind of pre-evangelized um, but no one had ever explained the Christian faith to me. There was no gospel preaching. Uh, and my sister was converted at university. In fact, her first Sunday, she went to Cambridge. Again, like happened to a lot. Someone preached the gospel and it all clicked. Mm -hmm. She then became very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she, she's, she's not, to this day, she's not uh, tactful, but she's, she's a great... <laughs> Um, she's a great evangelist because she's fearless. She'll talk to anyone. And, and, um, and she said to us, you're not real Christians, which isn't a great line. Um, so it got me very annoyed. And we were on a family holiday in, in a tent. And that's not a good context for a row. And um, she said this on the first day. And I, didn't, I literally refused to speak to her for the whole of the week. And we went home. Uh, I was so outraged, and then she wanted me to drive her into a church in the local town, which she'd heard was good. I refused. My mother came and said, take her to that wretched church. It'll shut her up. Um, we've, we've got to get this family on the road again. So um, I drove her there. I was so nervous, I went down a, a one-way street the wrong way, I remember, and I turned up. Now, I'd been raised in Anglican churches, and this was in a school. It was a non-denominational church. Nothing I'd ever experienced like it. I felt very uncomfortable. Um, but I noticed they believed it. I just could tell. And then um, one couple, uh, obviously the minister said, do pray for this couple because there'd been a tragedy. And um, just the, night, uh, the day before, one of their children had been killed in a bicycle accident. And could we pray? And... Uh, 
then another couple obviously spoke to the minister and said, could they speak? They got up and they began to speak and they said how they'd lost a child when um, the child was very young. But, and that, that, so they could feel what this family was going through. But Jesus had been with them. Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus the other. And I thought, my sister's right. I'm not a Christian. They are. They might be mad for all I know. <laughs> um, but it is about Jesus, so I'd better find out about him. And I, I had enough knowledge to know Jesus' gospels. So I had an old authorised version, took it off the shelf, blew the, the dust off, and uh, I started with Matthew's gospel because it was the first one. And... Um, on my own, without telling anyone, a at boarding school, I, I began to read. And it was as if I'd been plugged into spiritual electricity. Mm. And I knew that my life was never going to be the same again, that Jesus was true, alive, real. I couldn't have explained the gospel to you, but I knew my life would never be the same again. And uh, I knew it would change life. Now, of course, there are plenty of people... It changes life in, in, in um, moral behaviour and direction of life, but it doesn't change circumstances. They carry on doing the same kind of things. But for me, uh, I pretty early on thought, I, this is, I'm not going to be a lawyer, which is what I was planning to do. And um, in the year or two afterwards, what I longed pretty early on, which was to, to be a preacher and a pastor, um, gradually got confirmed. Ah, yeah. <laughs> what did my sister say? Well, of course, I didn't tell her for a while. <laughs> and, um, but wonderfully, I've got, that's my elder sister, but I've got a twin sister. And um, my elder sister, just a couple of years older, um, incidentally, um, was in California for many years, so I, their kids are Americans, and uh, so we've got family over here. And um, my twin sister, in a different town, she was staying at home, I was in a boarding school, Within two, three, four weeks of me, she was reading her Bible and she was converted. And amazingly, my closest friend was uh, from the age of one. We were sent to boarding school together at eight. And we were still at boarding school together at 17, 18. We shared a study together. And um, within two weeks of me being converted, he was invited by a teacher to a Christian meeting and he was converted. So... Praise God. And uh, needless to say, my sister was very pleased. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one of my parents then, dad had a faith, but had been dormant. That came alive. My mother thought, this is weird, didn't like it. But then her mother, my grandmother, was dying. And my elder sister witnessed to her. And she came to an assured faith and died amazingly well. And that had an impact on my mother. So we're all believers, praise God. Yes, what a beautiful story, mm. yes. Uh, one of the things that uh, you might have heard just a little bit about is that one of your books recently was uh, very impactful in the Diocese of South Carolina Youth Retreat because our own David Gilbert did a teaching session on friendship. And as many of you probably know, there is a crisis of friendship, especially among boys uh, in our culture right now. Massive loneliness, massive despair, and not uh, a, a path forward that they can understand. So David 
discerned through prayer that God wanted him to speak on this topic of friendship. And so he and I chatted some about it, and I asked him if he knew Von Roberts' book on friendship, and he didn't. And he took it, and he just, as Rebecca McLaughlin said, lapped it up. Um, <laughs> lapped it up and was really deeply moved by it. And so he did the standing room only teaching about friendship at this conference that was hugely impactful for these students. So I would love to just hear a little bit, not only about the writing of that book, but I think you've done some important speaking and teaching about why friendship is so important in the Christian faith. So I'd love for you to just expound on that a bit. Yeah, friendship's important in the Christian faith. It's important in life. And I think you're right that people have this category of friendship, not least because we've, it's such a sexualized culture that people assume that if there's any intimacy, it must be sexual intimacy. And, and then that, that means people are cautious about developing deeper friendships uh, and don't quite know how. But, and add to that the fact that a lot of the younger people are basically living their life through screens and through phones, and, and, and that has an impact relationally. And they're projecting through social media rather than more deeply. So, I, but but I began thinking about these things. I always find it easy to make make friends, but then as time got on, you get busy, and friends scatter because another impact of the modern world is mobility. We're constantly moving, and it makes it harder to, to maintain friendships. I'm single, and so I was hitting about forty, and I was thinking I'm in danger of getting quite isolated here. Um, so, I, and I needed to think about friendship, and I started thinking, I need to kind of reignite some of the older friendships, get out the bellows, and essentially (laughs) spend more time keeping in touch with people and say, look, your friendship means a lot to me. I need your friendship. And what I did, I assumed it was me as a single man particularly needing friendship. But as I went to, all the friends I was going to were married, I realized they were pretty isolated. Because another thing, that there's a kind of um, focus on romantic relationship as if they can give you everything. Well, that puts a huge pressure on, um, on marriages. And uh, so my married friends were, were, were so grateful. So well, we need this too. And that made me think, no, there's something here I need to, to speak into. And um, so j- just generally, I think we, we, this is a precious gift of God. And certainly in the Christian life, um, you know, are there those who you can do life with. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that, of course, is the, the wider church. We're called, told to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, which is very hard to do if they've no idea how you're feeling and what you're going through. Um, so that's a, something for the whole community. But within that, of course, in the church like St. Ebbs, the church like St. Philip's, you, not everyone's going to know how you're doing. And so there need to be some who you know well and... Uh, what a joy friendship is. And that there are times when you find you're carrying others, times when they're carrying you, and other times you're just delighting in life, and everything in life is better when it's shared. Great. So I commend that book to you. Um, I actually commend all of Vaughan's books to you. They're uh, all really good. And one of the things I appreciate about your writing is that it's very clear 
It's not obfuscated with lots of words like obfuscate. Uh, <laughs> it is, it's, it's clear, it's to the point, and it's absolutely rooted in the scriptures. And so that is a great blessing. Uh, I'd also love to hear a little uh, from you about uh, poetry and the role of poetry in your life, and especially George Herbert's poetry, and what you might share with us about that. I'd love to. And um, of course, whenever you tell your testimony, it's always truncated. Um, but actually, poetry had an impact on my conversion. I, was, I loved literature. And uh, as a schoolboy, I was studying English literature. And um, literature raised the big questions of life. So I was reading Shakespeare, King Lear. I really, the big issue there is what, what is a human being? Massive issue in, in King Lear. So that got me thinking. Uh, and I began reading George Herbert. George Herbert, a 17th century priest poet. And um, beautiful craftsman with words. But, but uh, speaking about God and the things of faith. And um, I, I was introduced to uh, some aspects of the gospel through um, reading Herbert. And so again, questions were being raised. I think more than I realized at the time. So once I came to faith, of course I went back to Herbert and these, these poems that I, I thought were special but I couldn't quite get a hold of, suddenly they spoke for me. And um, of course Christianity does involve the mind and one of the challenges is, is to get people using their mind. As John Stott uh, put it in one little booklet, your mind matters. And in some brands of Christianity, it, it's all the heart and the emotion and actually, you need to think. But there are other brands of Christianity, it's all the mind and thinking. And of course, we, we, we're integrated people. And the scriptures are literature. So there's truth in the Bible, but you don't read, read the scriptures to mine the truth and ignore the form in which it comes. And one of the forms in which it comes is poetry. And of course, um, that form helps bring truth into the heart. It speaks to the heart and enables the heart to speak back. So the Psalms are poetry. Mm -hmm. Great. So on that same vein, if you were to think back over perhaps the two or three most influential books in your own journey, uh, other than the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, so we'll take those off the table, uh, but other maybe two that were really significant to you and why. Sure, these, these things are always personal, but I mean, often they, these are just books that really had a, a deep impact at that particular time. So God, Graham Goldsworthy's book, Gospel and Kingdom, um, is a Bible overview. So it, it, it takes the Bible as a, shows the Bible as a story. And it begins at the beginning, God made the world. And everything goes wrong. And then the Old Testament is all part of the story. And that ends with the new creation, creation, new creation. And it helped me understand how the whole Bible fit together. I've never seen that before. Um, I kind of vaguely knew Old Testament promise, New Testament fulfillment, but a lot of it I couldn't see. And therefore, it helped me understand that the whole Bible is gospel. And so that when you're preaching any part of, or reading any part of the scripture, it relates to gospel. It speaks of Christ. And that had a big impact. And then I started giving as many people as I could that little book. 
Um, but I found it, it used words like obfuscate. <laughs> and, um, and people couldn't quite get it. So um, it, it, he's an Australian scholar, so I translated it from Australian into English <laughs> and, and, um, and from scholar speak into simple English. And so my book, God's Big Picture, is basically Graham Goldsworthy, but it, it's, it's testimony to the impact that that had on me. So that, that's been huge. Um, John Stott's The Cross of Christ came out when I was a young student, and um, I can still remember the excitement of getting it. And I had a, a fairly I mean, simple understanding of, of the cross, and it meant a lot to me, but that book um, increased my intellectual understanding of the depths of the glory of the cross of Christ, but also spoke to, to my heart, and I still go back to that often. It's a wonderful book. We use that in some of our work here. So that was a good recommendation if you haven't gotten that one yet. Uh, we are about to run out of time. One of the things that uh, we have talked about a little bit is that uh, you have a lot of Welsh heritage and that you are a lover of Welsh hymns. And I would love to hear a little bit about maybe one or two of those hymns that you love and why. Yeah, I don't have a little bit of Welsh heritage. My blood is entirely red. Um, uh, red being the Welsh national colour, so my origin is Welsh. And, um, well, of course, the tunes. Uh, when, when, when you've got a tune that really matches the, um, the language, and um, Love Divine, or Love's Excelling, is, um, well, that, that, that's very special because... Um, the, love is a beautiful thing, but if, if you think that any human love, be it friendship or be it marriage, will be the answer to all your issues and that'll satisfy in your life, you're, you're going to destroy the very thing you won't most want. But love divine, all love's excelling. Um, there's nothing, and that will help you keep loving even when the other person isn't very lovable um, or you don't feel very mm -hmm. loving because mm -hmm. your love tank is filled by love divine, all love's excelling. And um, then guide me, O oh, thy great uh, redeemer, Jehovah. Um, if you go to watch Wales play rugby, because there were great Welsh revivals in the early 20th century, uh, the Welsh just were hymn-singing people and the singing people. Sadly, many turned away from the faith, so it's, it's, it's dire now, but they still sing hymns at the rugby games. And um, so if you can hear the, um, the stadium, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, in, in harmony... It's an amazing thing. So I loved that hymn before I was converted, and then I began to understand what it actually meant. <laughs> and, uh, and I love it even more. Uh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you. I'd love for you to pray for us here at St. Philip's before we end today. Loving Father, thank you for this community, gospel-rich. And uh, pray that that gospel will more and more build a community of, of love, so that there's mutual support and encouragement to one another, as I've witnessed, and that that love would spill out into this community so that others would see something of what's going on in these people and be drawn to want to find out more so that more and more would come to know Jesus as their saviour, their Lord and their friend. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you.